0: The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It does not constitute legal or other professional advice. No one connected with this podcast can be responsible for your use of the information discussed. The views expressed are those of the podcaster and do not represent the opinions of any other person or entity. These views are subject to change, revision, and rethinking at any time. Welcome to LEAF, legal issues in policing, a podcast blending the demands of the book with the rulings from the bench through the lens of the bag. Police officers with a solid understanding of the law and their legal powers are more confident, competent, and effective. Each and every episode will examine a legal issue in policing by reviewing current Canadian criminal case law from coast to coast to coast. Be prepared to uncover a legal lesson that will improve your decision-making. Now let's leap in. Hello everyone, my name is Mike Novakowski, your podcast host, and you are listening to Leap, Legal Issues in Policing. Thank you all for tuning in. In this episode, we will be examining a case in which a man was charged with several offenses related to the operation of a canoe. Yes, I said a canoe. If this event wasn't so tragic, you might ask yourself, is this for real? Well, it is, and sadly it involves the death of a young boy. The case was released by a three-judge panel of the Ontario Court of Appeal and is cited as R.V. Sillers, 2022, ONCA 510. As always, a link to the case can be found in the episode notes. If you want to learn more about the trial judge's opinion, there are also several lower court decisions available for your reading pleasure. But for now, let's look at the facts behind this terrible incident. The accused, Mr. David Sillers, was an experienced canoeist. He was at a friend's cottage on the Muskoka River in Ontario when he decided to go canoeing with his girlfriend's 8-year-old son, Thomas. Thomas did not know how to canoe and was an inexperienced swimmer. On this day in April 2017, it was cold, only about 3-4 to degrees Celsius. The river was running high and fast with a strong current, and the water was frigid and turbulent. Sillers' friends told him not to go out on the water, but he went out anyways. He wanted to retrieve a barrel he had seen on the river leading up to a waterfall. This barrel had become wedged against a yellow floating barrier that warned of danger ahead. Before embarking on his canoe trip, Sillers had reportedly consumed alcohol and smoked a marijuana cigarette. Thomas wore a life jacket, but it was too small for his size and was worn over two layers of clothing and a winter jacket. Sillars and Thomas paddled toward the barrier. As they got closer to the barrier, the current grew stronger and the water more turbulent. When Thomas leaned out of the canoe to put his paddle on the barrier, the canoe capsized. Sillars was able to swim to shore, but Thomas went over the falls. The police were called about a man on shore and when they arrived, they found Sillars suffering from hypothermia and he was transported to the hospital. While Sillars was being treated, police officers saw Thomas in the water and swam out to rescue him. CPR was performed on Thomas and he was transported to the hospital by ambulance as well. A sergeant attended the hospital with an ASD and a blood kit. When he entered Sillars' hospital room, he could not smell any odor of alcohol, so he asked Sillars to blow across his face. Sillars complied and the sergeant detected a slight odor of alcohol. When the sergeant asked Sillars if he'd had anything to drink, Sillers said he had consumed two coolers. The sergeant formed a reasonable suspicion that Sillars had alcohol in his body within three hours of operating a vessel, that vessel being the canoe. An ASD demand for a breath sample was made from a preprinted card. Although he did not initially comply nor refuse to provide a sample, Sillers eventually agreed to blow into the ASD which registered a fail. He was then arrested for impaired operation of a vessel and operating a vessel with over 80 milligrams of alcohol in his body. He was then cautioned and read his right to a lawyer. A call to duty counsel was provided and arrangements to bring the intoxilizer to the hospital were made. It was soon learned that Thomas had been pronounced dead. When this happened, the sergeant interrupted Siller's call with his lawyer to advise them of the change in circumstances and that there would be a charge of impaired operation causing death. Sillers was then allowed to finish his lawyer call in private. Two intoxilizer samples were obtained, the first registering ninety seven milligrams of alcohol in one hundred milliliters of blood, and the second one hundred milligrams of alcohol in one hundred milliliters of blood. The police subsequently executed a search warrant months later on the hospital and seized Siller's hospital records, including an analysis of his blood, which was later used by a toxicologist to identify his BAC as one hundred and twenty eight milligrams of alcohol per one hundred milliliters of blood. Sillers was charged with impaired operation of a vessel causing death, operating a vessel with over 80 milligrams percent causing death, dangerous operation of a vessel causing death, and criminal negligence causing death. He was ultimately convicted of impaired operation of a vessel causing death and criminal negligence causing death. Charges of operating a vessel while over 80 milligrams percent causing death and dangerous operation of a vessel causing death were stayed pursuant to the pineapple principle. The judge went on to sentence Sillers to six years in prison. After all, he was no model citizen. At the time, he had a criminal record spanning seven years with 15 convictions for assault, assault causing bodily harm, threatening offenses, mischief under, and failing to comply with court orders, both probation and recognizances. He had served jail sentences of 10 months for assault causing bodily harm, uttering threats, failed to comply with probation and disobeying a court order, and a previous penitentiary sentence of 26 months for uttering threats and disobeying a court order. At trial in the Superior Court of Justice, there were many issues raised by the defense. I will be highlighting two of those issues that led to a ruling on this case made by the Ontario Court of Appeal. The first issue was whether a canoe is a vessel as defined in the criminal code. If a canoe is not a vessel under the criminal code, there can be no convictions for impaired operation, operation over 80 milligrams per cent, or dangerous operation of a vessel. In his lengthy ruling on the meaning of a vessel, the trial judge concluded that a canoe was a vessel. The trial judge considered Hansard debates, dictionary definitions, and other statutes to confirm his conclusion. The trial judge also found that the legal justifications and constitutionality for screening drivers at the roadside applied equally to conveyances on waterways, regardless of their method of propulsion. At the Ontario Court of Appeal level, Sillers tried to convince the three-judge panel that a canoe is not a vessel. At the time of Thomas's death in 2017, vessel was defined in Section 214 of the Criminal Code as including, quote, a machine designed to derive support in the atmosphere primarily from reactions against the earth's surface of air expelled from the machine, end quote. This definition of vessel only indicated through the description provided that a hovercraft was included. No other description of a vessel was set out in the definition. The trial judge noted that Section 214 did not provide a comprehensive or complete definition of vessel. In fact, no definition at all was provided. Today, vessel is defined in section 320.11 of the criminal code as including, quote, a hovercraft, end quote. Essentially, the definition is the same. The difference only being the word hovercraft has replaced a description of how a hovercraft works. Sillers offered several reasons why a canoe should not be considered a vessel. Number one, according to dictionary definitions, the classification of a vessel is based on size. Number two, the categories of transportation for which criminal liability exists share the common feature of being licensed modern modes of transportation whose impaired, negligent, or dangerous operation can have catastrophic consequences. Number three, the scheme and object of former driving offence provisions are aimed at regulating licensed modes of transportation and operating a canoe does not require a license. Number four, the logic of regulation breaks down with canoes as multiple people can control its speed and direction. And number five, a canoe is muscle-powered, and thus more analogous to a bicycle. But the Court of Appeal rejected Siller's arguments. Its discussion went fairly deep into the weeds. As a frontline police officer, the principles of statutory interpretation and legislative intent are things you generally do not consider. But let's explore them a bit in this episode. Let's take a deeper dive. Interpreting a statute requires attention to text, context, and purpose. So when looking at the meaning of a word or words, they must be interpreted in their entire context and in their grammatical and ordinary sense harmoniously with the scheme of the act in which they are found and the intention of Parliament. In looking at the text, dictionaries can be a useful tool. So while some dictionary definitions of vessel refer to size, others include any watercraft capable of transportation on water, and still others just say a boat. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary, for example, defines canoe as a light, narrow boat. A boat is then defined as a small vessel for travel on water. A vessel and a boat are synonymous. And in the context of the section 254 sub 2 ASD provision, a canoe is a boat. Here's what the Court of Appeals said. Quote, the text of section 254 sub 2 thus suggests that canoe comes within the intended meaning of vessel. An analysis of the purpose or object of the enactment confirms this reading. The object of the enactment is to protect the public from the consequences of impaired operation of conveyances on the water. The scheme and object of the Act is clearly to address the public safety issue of impaired conveyances on the road and on the water. Impairment creates risks to passengers of a canoe, other watercraft, swimmers, and first responders. Unlicensed conveyances, non-muscular powered vessels, and sailboats pose a risk of injury and death just as licensed and motor powered conveyances do. The risks are not restricted to vessels that are required to be licensed." Furthermore, the word vessel appears several times in the legislation, but there is no qualifier such as when vehicle is qualified by the word motor. In the Court of Appeals view, if the legislature sought to limit liability to exclude muscle-powered vessels or non-licensed conveyances, it would just have done so. Additionally, the dangerous operation provision found in Section 249 Sub 1, as it was then written, includes water skis, surfboard, water sled, or other towed object. These are not motorized or licensed conveyances. So as you can see, statutory interpretation is a fairly involved process. At the end of the day, a canoe was found to be a vessel. The second issue I wanted to examine was Siller's submission that the delay in advising him of his right to a lawyer violated his Section 10B Charter right to counsel. At the trial, the judge found the sergeant's request for Siller's to blow across his face was for the purpose of determining whether there were grounds to reasonably suspect he had consumed alcohol. It was not until the sergeant formed a reasonable suspicion and made the ASD demand that Siller's had been detained. And even if the request for Sillars to blow across the sergeant's face and the subsequent question asked about whether he had anything to drink amounted to a detention, Sillars Section 10B rights could be briefly suspended. Although this was not a roadside detention, the demand could not have been made at the waterfront because Sillers required medical attention and the police were still investigating what had happened. It is not uncommon for screening measures which precede the demand to be conducted at a hospital. Sillers contended that his right to counsel was breached by the delay in informing of his right to counsel, which was not provided to him until after he was arrested. Under Section 254 Sub 2, as it was then, a peace officer could demand a breath sample for an ASD. A fail on the ASD then can provide grounds to demand breath samples for analysis by means of an approved instrument, like an intoxilizer. The right to counsel is suspended during compliance with a screening demand. Sillers wanted the suspension of the right to counsel to only apply at the roadside or on the water, not in a hospital. His argument went like this. Once he was in the hospital, there was no longer any urgency to obtain the sample. As he put it, the forthwith requirement would not apply at the hospital and the right to counsel not suspended because the rationale for relieving the police from their Section 10b obligations is limited to roadside or waterfront demands. In his opinion, he should have been advised of his right to counsel before the ASD test. But the Court of Appeal judges didn't buy what Sillers was trying to sell them. The ASD provision contains an implied exemption temporarily relieving the police from their Section 10b obligations. There are two temporal or timing requirements to a demand under section 254 sub 2 of the code. One temporal requirement is the timing of operation. The officer must have reasonable grounds to suspect that the person has alcohol in their body when the officer makes the demand and that the person was operating the vessel within the preceding three hours. The other temporal requirement is the timing of the demand. In assessing the effect of the delay in fulfilling the forthwith requirement on the right to counsel, several factors are considered. Number one, the context. Number two, the immediacy requirement commences at the stage of reasonable suspicion and must take into account all of the circumstances. The police officer must promptly make the demand once they form the reasonable suspicion that the operator has alcohol in their body. Number three, the time from the formation of reasonable suspicion to the making of the demand to the detainee's response to the demand by refusing or providing a sample. This must be no more than is reasonably necessary to enable the officer to discharge their duty as contemplated by section 254 sub 2. And number 4, consideration of whether the police could realistically have fulfilled their obligation to implement the detainee section 10b rights before requiring the sample. If the police could have realistically fulfilled the detainee Section 10B rights, the forthwith criterion has not been met. In this case, the sergeant formed his reasonable suspicion less than a minute after he entered Siller's hospital room and an ASD demand was made immediately for a sample. The sample was provided six minutes later and he was arrested two minutes after that. There was no lengthy detention. Section 254 Sub 2 permitted a demand within three hours of the suspected offense and allowed the police to investigate suspects wherever they found them. In Siller's case, this was at the hospital. So what can we learn from this case? First, we must understand that the provisions referred to in the Siller's case were repealed in 2018 and replaced by new section numbers. But many of the newer provisions mirror the former law, though they are worded slightly different. For example, Impaired Operation, the former Section 253, specifically speaks to the impaired operation of a motor vehicle, vessel, aircraft, or railway equipment. The new provision, Section 320.14, speaks to the impaired operation of a conveyance. A conveyance is now defined in Section 320.11 as meaning a motor vehicle, vessel, aircraft, or railway equipment. So the two provisions cover off the same modes of transportation. But... Former Section 253 sub B, as an offence, required a BAC in excess of 80 milligrams per cent. Today, the BAC level must be equal to or exceeding 80 milligrams per cent to be an offence. This is a small but important change. I remember many years ago when I arrested a male for impaired driving when he ran over an elderly lady crossing the road in a marked crosswalk, killing her. By the time he blew in the breathalyzer at the station, his BAC was exactly 80 milligrams per We needed a toxicologist to extrapolate backwards to provide an opinion of what his BAC was at the time of driving. And of course, many of you know of the current mandatory alcohol testing for operators of a motor vehicle. This does not include other conveyances like vessels. There are other differences, but I just wanted to point out we must be careful in applying case law from decisions when the law has since changed. But what did we learn here? Number 1. A canoe is a vessel. Remember, the current definition of vessel is almost identical. And what is really interesting, the initial draft of the new impaired legislation included a definition that read vessel includes a hovercraft, but does not include a vessel that is powered exclusively by means of muscular power. But the part about not including a vessel that is powered exclusively by means of muscular power which would encompass a canoe was dropped so we are left today with a vessel including a hovercraft literally the same as when it was when Sillars was charged Number two, under the former Section 254 Sub 2 demand, the term forthwith was interpreted as meaning immediately or without delay. It indicated a prompt demand by a peace officer and an immediate response by the person to whom the demand was made. Of course, in unusual circumstances, forthwith was given a more flexible interpretation than its ordinary meaning strictly suggested. The equivalent demand provision today is found in Section 320.27 Sub 1. It is almost identical to the section 254 sub 2 provision in its material aspects. However, the word forthwith has been replaced by the word immediately. But we know that is how forthwith had been interpreted anyways. And some courts have found that the use of the word immediately instead of forthwith in this context is simply a modernization of the language without any change in meaning. In other words, forthwith and immediately are synonymous. They mean the same thing. And you still need the requisite reasonable suspicion that the person has alcohol or a drug in their body and a reasonable suspicion they have operated the conveyance, whether it be a motor vehicle, vessel, aircraft or railway equipment, within the preceding three hours. Number 3. The law provides that a person's Section 10B Charter Right to Counsel is constitutionally suspended during roadside sobriety investigations. It has been held that this infringement of the right to counsel is justified under Section 1 of the Charter as a reasonable limit. But this justification only exists if the ASD demand and the administering of it complies with the immediacy requirement contained in Section 320.27 of the Criminal Code. The equivalent of the roadside for motor vehicles is the waterfront for vessels. This includes waterfront ASD testing. The fact that the ASD demand in the Sillers case occurred at the hospital did not change this. The police can hold off advising the operator of the right to contact counsel until the demand has been complied with, despite a detention that is occurring and ongoing. However, where there is a delay in accessing the screening device, the Section 10B charter limitation may no longer be in effect. Police officers must, in such circumstances, consider whether they can realistically fulfill the Section 10B charter rights before requiring compliance with the screening device. I know this was a lot of information, but I believe it is important sometimes to understand how or why a court comes to its conclusions rather than simply the outcome. Don't get me wrong, the destination matters, but so too does the route taken to get there. Having a deeper understanding of the issues might help you with making future decisions. There is more to this case than the two issues I have discussed in this episode. You can always read the full decision for a complete analysis. If you think this podcast would interest others, please share it. And if you have a topic you would like discussed in a future episode, you can email me at LegalIssuesInPolicing at gmail.com. That's LegalIssuesInPolicing at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. And remember, be careful what you practice. You might get good at it. Be smart and stay safe.